0: So you could say chapter 26 is the tale of five wells because there are five wells that are dug by Isaac in this chapter. And we'll jump in and we'll see why because verses one through five set this up. Now, there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. This is a little thing that you should probably note Uh, Genesis does cycles, and the cycles are a lot alike because life is a lot alike. What we go through as people is not very different from what Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph go through as people. And so there are these cycles. We all have famines. We all have fruitful times, and it's really shaping the way that we respond to them, showing here's good response, here's not a good response. Here's a good response, and it'll kind of go back and forth like that. So same thing Abraham went through, Isaac now is going through. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And Yahweh appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt, dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring, I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands, and in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Fascinating. So first of all, Isaac goes down to this guy, Abimelech. It's a title, the Abimelech, like the Pharaoh. It could possibly be the same Abimelech that Abraham had met in Genesis 20, 75 years has passed since there. So it's possible the Abimelech in chapter 20 was a young man and now he's an old man. It's possible. He'd be about 100 years old probably. Um, if, he, if it is the same guy, it then makes sense that he doesn't have a desire to take Rebekah because he's 100 years old. Things have probably changed for him. So that's very possible. It's possible it's a different guy and it's just the same Title I don't know, but Isaac here is going to go through the same things that Abraham, his father, have. There's a famine. Abraham had a famine. There's this guy Abimelech who's kind of looking sometimes for gals, or he's worried about looking for gals. Um, there's fear. Isaac is plagued with the same fear that Abraham is plagued with. He has strife and contention over digging wells. Perhaps you remember in Genesis 21, there was strife and contention when Abraham was trying to dig some wells. And there was problems there. Uh, There's a contention with somebody and there has to be a separation. Just like Abraham had contention with Lot and had to separate from Lot. So there's a lot of this kind of cycle. And I think for me as a dad, I have to be careful of trying to prevent my kids from going through difficult stuff. Isn't that that kind of desire in us to soften the blow, to kind of shape their life in a way that they don't have the famines and they don't have the fear and they don't have the abimelechs and they don't have the strife and they don't have the contention. Don't we as parents kind of want that? Yeah, but I don't think it's always healthy. So there's this guy, his name is Ron Melzack. You can Google him. He did something with Scottish terrier puppies it was very interesting. Right when they were born, he removed them from their litter, put them in these very soft, padded environments so they didn't have another dog nipping at them or biting them or another puppy playing with them. Uh, all their food was really, really moist. And for those first six months of their lives, they experienced no harshness, no difficulty, no trouble. And then at six months, he started to test them. Here's what he found. They were ill-equipped for life. He would put a candle out and the little Scottish cherry would come up to that candle and sniff it until its nose burned off because the normal response of pain is actually learned. Do you know that? The same signal that tells you you're getting a kiss from your wife can also tell you you're getting hit in the face by an enemy. What tells your brain what it is is what happened to you, right? The eyesight, the smack, all those kind of things. So they had not developed the proper response to pain. They're ill-equipped for life. That softness, that coddling was not healthy for them. Did you know this? I just read this study. The jaw of Western people, Europe, America, is shrinking every single year. Did you know that? It's why you have to get your wisdom teeth That's why a lot of kids now, when they go into an orthodontist, they have to not just have uh, their wisdom teeth pulled later, they have to have teeth in their mouth pulled. And the reason why is this, the food we eat is too soft now. That really, for most of our lives, going back thousands of years, when you ate food it was much tougher and more difficult to eat during your childhood, and that actually promoted your body to grow a big, strong jaw. And your teeth fit correctly. Now, we eat too soft a food. Just go eat uh, any kind of fowl in a third world country. Chicken. It's like gristle. It is the toughest meat in the world. It's not the soft, spongy, breast meat that we eat now. It's extremely hard to eat. You have to usually boil it. And then it's really tough. And that actually makes their jaws bigger and their teeth fit their mouth right. That's fascinating to me. When I learned that, I started taking Myron out and handing him three-quarter minus gravel. Just chew on this, bud. It's gonna, you're going to have a Superman jaw when you grow up. So we have this kind of coddling thing in us where we want to protect our children from the very difficulty that actually shaped us and made us strong. And so there's this balance, I think, in life. We can't be the helicopter parent that hovers over our kids and removes any danger from them. That's actually really unhealthy. What God says to Isaac is the right thing. He does not say, hey, buddy, let me remove the famine. Let me take this difficulty out of your life. He doesn't say that. What does God say? I'll be with you and I'll bless you in this famine. I think that's the right response for a dad or for a mom. Hey, That's tough, that bully at school. Hey, that's tough. The soccer team isn't treating you right. Hey, that's tough how that friend has gossiped about you. I'm not gonna helicopter over that, but I'm gonna be with you through this. I'm gonna walk through this with you. And if you walk through it well, there'll be a blessing in it. There will be a blessing in it because God promises you that. I think that's the right kind of parenting that's supposed to happen with you and with me. It's amazing. God just says, I'm not taking the famine away, but I'll be with you and I'll bless you. And he essentially repeats the Abrahamic blessing of Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 and Genesis 17. God just kind of crunches them together and says, listen, Isaac, you're the one. I'm bringing all these blessings on you. And then verse five to me, we could spend all night on. It is one of the most fascinating texts in the book of Genesis. I'll read it for you, and I'll try to be super short. What does God say? He says this, I'm going to do this for you because Abraham obeyed my voice. Okay, sure. Kept my charge. All right. Kept my commandments. What commandments? There's no 10 commandments yet. My statutes. What statutes? And my laws, or literally my Torah. Abraham heard my voice, kept it. Kept my commands, kept my statutes, kept my Torah. You have to ask yourself, when did Abraham get God's Torah? Because the Torah, for really the rest of Scripture, it refers to the 613 do's and don'ts of the Pentateuch. That's the first five books of the Bible. All those things thou shalt not do this, thou shalt do this, you can't get tattoos, make sure you don't shave your beards, all those things, that's the Torah. When did Abraham keep all of God's Torah? Is Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. At the very end of the Pentateuch, after all those 613 laws are given, Moses says this essentially you'll never keep it. In fact, there's a song about it. It's Deuteronomy 32. It's the most funny song in the world. It's like, you can't keep these laws you're going to go it's going to go south for you. So in chapter 30 verse 6, Moses says this. What's got to happen is this, God has to circumcise your heart so that you can be able to keep the Torah. There has to be a heart work done on you. And then that heart work gets expanded throughout the Old Testament. Jeremiah picks it up and says this in Jeremiah 31:33. There's coming a time when God's going to write his Torah on your hearts. And then Ezekiel, after Jeremiah, Ezekiel 36, verses 23 through 26, brilliant. It says, God's going to remove your heart of stone that can't do these things. And he's going to give you a heart of flesh that can keep the Torah. And he's going to sprinkle you with clean water so that you're cleansed. And he's going to give you his spirit so that you are able to obey his voice. All those things are saying, hey, there's a way to do it. I think Abraham did it first, that he actually, because of his walk with Yahweh, processed, and we know this, he was not a perfect man. He lied. He was deceitful. He has the Hagar incident. He was not a perfect man. But what did he do right? It's Genesis 15. He amened, it's translated believed, he amened or he believed God. And that was counted to him as righteousness. I believe that Yahweh is good and generous. And that shaped the way that Abraham lived out his life. And he lived out his life in a way that God would say, that's exactly the life I want. Abraham, you knocked it out of the park because your life was shaped by a trust in me. And the way that you live based on that trust that I am good and generous is exactly how I want people to live. That's why Romans and Galatians and James point to Abraham as the Old Testament Testament example of faith. All of them say, he did it. He did it right. He got it. So I could go off on this text. I did a message just on this, I think last year at this time, where we just centered in on this. So if you want to get it, I'm sure you can podcast it or we can burn a CD. It's brilliant. I think it, 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 it actually carries from Genesis 2 to here into Exodus 19, where there's this fascinating thing before the law is ever given. So you can podcast it or get that. It's amazing. Abraham, the example in the Old Testament. Study his life. It's brilliant. So he's told that. And so here's what he does. He does the sins of his father, verse 6. So Isaac settled in Gerar. I think what has happened here is Isaac is headed to Egypt, right? He's headed down that direction. God intercepts him, stops him, and then he just says, okay, I'll stay right here. I don't think that's exactly what God wanted for him. I think he wanted him to turn around, and we'll see that in a second, and go back to where he really belonged. But he just kind of settles in this area called Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister, for he feared to say, my wife. Does this ring a bell at all? Yeah. Thinking, lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out the window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, behold, she is your wife. How then could you say, she is my sister? And Isaac said to him, because I thought, lest I die because of her. And Abimelech said, what is this that you have done to us? One of the people might have easily lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people saying, whoever touches this man or his wife, shall surely be put to death, just like his dad. I don't know, but it seems like Abraham and Isaac, these men marry up, don't they? Their wives are like incredible knockouts. It's like when you go to a restaurant and you see the guy with the gal and you're like, that does not fit. Either guy's got game or guy's got money. I don't know how he did that. It's kind of like that. And so they're always maybe a little insecure about, uh uh-oh, someone's going to take her from me. But the, the, the message for me as a dad, as a parent, is look out. The way I live impacts my children. My kids are like this. My kids are like the NSA. They're always recording everything that I do. They're never turning it off and eventually they're going to replay it in their lives. I see it very early with my kids. My son Myron, when he was two and a half, I have a dry kind of joking sense of humor. It's always on in my life. I never turn it off. So Myron, two and a half years old, we're down in the barn together. We're hanging out, dad, son time, and he starts calling me Matt. Hey, Matt, I don't like that. I've never liked that with my kids. So I stopped and I said, Myron, My name is Matt, but I'm your dad. And I like it a lot when you call me dad. That makes me feel really good. Okay, buddy? He looked at me and he said, okay, Matt. (laughs) I was like, yep, I earned that. That's exactly what I would have done. They're the NSA, man. They're always, always on. We have to be careful. And notice it is fear, In both Abraham, it's like generational thing. It's fear in Abraham and it's fear in Isaac. What is the number one command in the Bible? Fear not. What's the big command these two guys break? Fear, the number one command. Yesterday we were talking as pastors and um, we were talking about our kids' ministry application. And on that application, it asks this question. It asks, do you smoke? And I'm like, why in the world do we ask that question? Now, I don't think you should smoke. Don't get me wrong. I think it's unhealthy and there's a lot of problems. But where in the Bible do we get that as the question to ask? Right? Why don't we ask, are you afraid? Because that's the command that's repeated in the Bible. Why don't we ask? Are you greedy? Because that's a command that's repeated in the Bible. Why don't we ask, do you love your neighbor? Because that's a repeated command in the Bible. Why don't we ask, are you kind? Because that's a repeated command in the Bible, right? We're asking like this crazy question. And we're overlooking these major big things that go throughout all of scripture. It's really funny to me. It's funny um, how I I, I think that... uh, The big ones are the hardest ones. So it's almost like we ignore them to to concentrate on the ones that we don't do. I don't smoke, so I must be good. But man, I'm afraid of everybody. I think if you ask yourself how often sin is connected to fear, it's all the time. How many of the big mistakes that you've made in your life were connected to some kind of fear? what is peer pressure? What is the driving motivation behind peer pressure? Fear. Fear of losing your coolness, fear of not having friends, fear of being whatever, right? The good kid. It's fear. And and yet we'll gloss over that one for, do you smoke? So funny. I think we're going to change it to, are you afraid? (laughs) And check them all because you know what? We all are. why it's repeated over and over and over and over again. It is a snare. Hmm. And it says, I love this. I love the ESV at times. So it it says, so Abimelech's looking out his window and it says that he saw Isaac laughing with Rebecca. And he's like, oh dude, she's your wife. I'm like, I don't think that makes sense. right. They're laughing. A, A much better translation of this word is fondling. Caressing, and it's not laughing. He's not like oh, that was a good joke. Ha 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 ha. He, she must be your wife. That's not your sister. You're laughing together. It's ridiculous. I'm like that is the stupidest thing. <laughs> it should be something like he's they, the the king sees something. He's like what in the world? That is weird. Or she's not your sister. It's one of those two. Those are your options right there. Okay. So uh, I think fondling or caressing or there's there's an embrace that happens in the field uh, because this would have been a culture that probably was very divided when it came to men and women. If you've been to India, they're they're like that. When you go to a church in India, the women sit on one side, the men sit on the other side. When you walk down the street, you'll see men all together, and then you'll see the women and children behind them. You could never figure out who a man was married to just by watching their society. You couldn't. They don't hold hands with their wives. They'll gladly hold hands with a man, with me, for instance, which is weird. But man, no problem. So it's kind of like that. And there's a moment where this king's looking out and he sees something happening out in the field that he's like, that's your wife. And this pagan king, this pagan king says, dude, what are you doing? One of my people could have ended up bringing guilt on us because of your deceit. I think that's fascinating. This pagan king has a better moral compass than Isaac, the believer. We need to be very careful as believers of dividing the world up into us, the good people, and them, the bad people. I think over and over, Genesis is saying, oh, that's wrong, Because remember, the same thing happened with Abraham. The pagan king was the good, moral dude, while Abraham was the deceitful liar. We have to be very careful of that, that somehow people that are out there, atheists or whatever, are immoral, terrible people, biting the heads off bats like Ozzy Osbourne. I grew up in a church like that, where I I was afraid of all the them out there. And it's wrong, because this pagan is still created in the image of God, and he bears in him the stamp of a moral compass that tells him what is right or wrong. Whether he obeys that is a different question, but atheists can be moral people, no doubt about it. You have to be careful of the dividing up of, hey, these are good people and these are bad people. I think we need to learn from G.K. Chesterton, who was asked by the London Times to write an essay on this topic, What is wrong in the world? This is what G.K. Chesterton wrote. Dear London Times, what is wrong with the world? I am, sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. That's the truth. That's the truth. We, each of us, have contributed to brokenness, no doubt about it. And we are, by the grace of God, being pulled back and back and back. And when we start dividing the world into us versus them, we lose God's grace. Isaac is chosen here, and we'll see in the next chapter, not because he's a great dude. Isaac is chosen because of God's grace. And when you lose God's grace, you begin to divide the world into us versus them. But when you keep retaining how good God has been and his grace to you, what happens is, oh, these lines dissolve and you have a much better view of the world. And Abimelech here becomes Isaac's protector, doesn't he? Look at verse 11. If anyone touches this lying, deceitful person that almost brought guilt upon my people, they'll be killed. It's God ringing good from Isaac's evil because that's what God does over and over because it's his beautiful, incredible grace. And I believe this is one of the biggest lessons for Isaac. That to me, this chapter right here is Isaac growing up. He gets a lesson here, and the lesson is this. God can fight for me. I don't have to be afraid, because God can fight for me. He can take the king that I think is going to steal my wife, and he can actually use that king to be my divine protector that punishes any evildoer with capital punishment. And Isaac learns this lesson and will see him begin to apply it to his life. It's brilliant. So here's what happens. After he does all that, big time mistake, look what happens to him. Verse 12, and Isaac sowed in the land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. Did he deserve that? <laughs> he just lied and was deceitful and had a terrible witness for Yahweh. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham. And Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. Sins, blows it, confronted by a pagan king, terrible witness, and what does God do? A hundredfold. Now, the best you could possibly want was a 25-fold increase. This is like August when people are bringing you those big Safeway bags full of zucchini. You know, it's just like, I got too much of zucchini, please take it. Make some bread, do anything. It's like that. He, just, he doesn't know what to do with it all. He's being blessed right after he blows it. I do not think that's a mistake. Some of the biggest blessings I've ever had in my life came right after I was a bonehead because it's God reminding me it's my grace, Matt. And I'm gonna do this when you don't deserve it. You're almost like, please don't bless me now. Please don't. No, not now. I wanna do just a little something to deserve this. And God's like, no, nope. I'm gonna bless you when you're a bonehead. So you keep being reminded it's me. They know this is divine blessing. So what do they do? They sabotage his wells and they send him away. Isn't that stupid? Because why? They were jealous. Jealousy robs you of a potential blessing. What could they have done? They could have been like, dude, Isaac, you just reaped a hundredfold. What is your secret? But instead of doing that because of jealousy, what do they do instead? Get out of here. We don't want you around us. You make us look bad. Forget about it. You know that's in all of us, that same tendency? I have this study it was in a Philip Yancey book, like in 1990. I've never forgot it. Because a study said this, and, and the money is from 1990 money. It said this, it gave this, this question to people two options. Option one is this you make $50,000 a year, which was a good salary in 1990, you're, you're banking it. You make $50,000 a year, and all your friends, all your crew, they make $25,000 a year. So you're the top dog, you're the richest in your crew. Or scenario two is this you make $125,000 a year, you're banking it, but all your crew makes $250,000 a year. Which scenario do you wanna live in? Guess what the majority of people chose? $50,000, but I'm top dog. Yeah, that's in all of us. Because really what we compare to is our crew. We're not comparing to Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos, and we're not comparing to them. We're comparing to our crew. And so we're just like these people, envy, get away. Instead of saying, what's your secret? What are you doing right? I could learn from you. I could glean from you. How'd you get a hundredfold here? Because Yahweh blessed me. We're just like them. We need to battle against that, I think, right? So they don't. We're not gonna ask you what's happening. We're not gonna say, maybe we should follow Yahweh like you. Maybe that's the key. We're not gonna do that. We just wanna get you out of here. We're gonna sabotage you and send you away which is what a lot of people do, missing out on the potential of learning a secret from someone that's successful. So Isaac departed, verse 17, and encamped in the valley of Gerar. He's moving back towards where he's supposed to be, and he settled there. And Isaac dug in the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, you know what that means? This means the water comes out of the ground. That means it's really easy to get water. Have you ever lived somewhere where you have to drop a bucket into a well and pull up the bucket? I did it in Vanuatu for a year, super hard. I would have loved a well of spring water. This is the best well in the world. This is as good as you could get. Like they're like jackpot. What happens? The herdsmen of Gerar, the Philistines, quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen saying, the water is ours. So he called the name of that well, Esek, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well and they quarreled over that one also. So he called its name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, for now the now Yahweh has made room for us, and we shall be in the land fruitful. Hmm. So Sunday we looked at this. Let me make one point on it. If you look at the story of Abraham, he's a peacemaker. He wasn't a fighter. He he did one time where he fought because of his nephew being taken away. But he was a peacemaker. That was the major point of his life. Isaac is exactly the same. He's a peacemaker. You and I are not born peacemakers. Do you know that? We're not. When someone takes something from us, our spring of water, most of us, are not going to be a peacemaker then, are we? Uh Uh-uh. I think we're born with it. Let me read this. I thought this was funny. It's called Toddler Property Rights. Have you heard this before? So someone looked at a toddler and just watched them and decided, here are the rights that toddlers believe they have for property. It goes like this. Number one, if I like it, it's mine. If it's in my hand, it's mine. If I can take it from you, it's mine. If I had it a little while ago, it's mine. If it's mine, it must never appear to be yours in any way. <laughs> if I'm doing or building something, all the pieces are mine. If it looks just like mine, it's mine. <laughs> if I saw it first, it's mine. If you're playing with something and you put it down, it automatically becomes mine. If it's broken, it's yours. <laughs> <laughs> You can have that one. I don't want to. We're born with that. So Isaac here is acting in a way that's very different. He digs a well, hits jackpot for a man in his industry. And what does he do? No problem. Take it. Goes to another one, hits jackpot. Good water here. No problem. Take it. Here's why. Why? I think what happened with him and Abimelech when he's lying and deceitful and God protects him and blesses him, changed him. Where now he's like, God, you see, and you'll fight for me. I'm not gonna contend. I'm not gonna strive. I'm okay. You see, you know. I'll move and lose for a moment, but I'll gain in the long run. Do you know that Jesus calls us to that same thing? It's Matthew chapter 5, verse 40. He says this, if someone wants to sue you for your shirt, don't, don't go to court. Instead, give them your shirt and your coat. Modern translation, someone wants to sue you for your car, say, hey, I don't want to go to court with you. Take my car and my truck. Who does that? Who does that? We are so selective in what parts of the Bible we really obey. As believers, we are so selective. Jesus says, don't go to court. Give them more than they ask for because we're selective. And I think this is why. And I'm totally guilty of this. Guilty as charged. Deep down, I don't believe, verse three, I don't believe that God is with me and he'll bless me. I think I gotta get mine. I'm still a toddler. It's mine. I had it first, it's mine. Deep down, that's what I am. I don't really trust that God sees, and my momentary loss will be made up better than I can possibly ever have imagined. Hmm. Jesus' words, it's amazing. So here's what we're going to see with Isaac. God is moving him from border town back to verse 23, back to Beersheba. And he's moving him through broken relationships, Through contention, through strife, through loss. That step-by-step, God is, get out of here, you're mightier than us. Contention, strife, problems, and slowly but surely what you see is Isaac moving from border town back to where God wanted him originally, Beersheba. And in Beersheba, what we'll find is he finally has peace. I think God does that a lot of times in our lives that he moves and he directs us through broken relationships, through strife, through contention, back to the place where we have shalom, Rehabah, peace. So Colossians has this great verse. It's Colossians 3, verse 20. It says this, let the peace of God rule in your heart. The Greek there for rule, it's the verb of brabeos. Brabeos, the noun, means umpire. And it was the guy, the umpire, the judge of the Greek games. So he would tell people, hey, you're in or you're out. You're good. You win, you lose. He umpired that. And so Paul actually grabs that word, makes a noun out of it to bring in that metaphor. And he's saying this, let God's peace tell you, hey, you're winning or you're losing. Hey, you're in or you're out. Let it guide you If there's strife, and there's contention, and there's broken relationships, that's probably not where you're supposed to be. Start moving, start moving, until you find your Rehoboth, until you find where you're supposed to be. James 3 does the same thing. This incredible chapter that talks about the bit inside of a horse's mouth. What does a bit do? Guides a horse, right? The rudder on a ship, what does a rudder on a ship do? Directs a ship. And then there's this, verses 13 through 18, read it. It's incredible. It says there, there's two kinds of wisdom. There's a wisdom that leads to strife and contention and broken relationships. I'm going to get mine. Don't you dare run over me. I will show you. I will prove it to you. You want to sue me, I'll sue you. Countersuit. There's that kind of wisdom. I'm not saying there's never a place to sue. I don't know if there is. I'm just saying Jesus said, someone's going to sue you for your shirt. Give me your coat. And, and James says, there's that kind of wisdom. It's, just, it's strife and contention. But then he says, there's another kind of wisdom that's peaceable and fruitful and lasting and beautiful. And that's the one that you want to be directed by. I think peace very often is God's way of guiding us. If there's broken relationships and strife and contention, then we need to get back to our Beersheba where we belong. God, what's happened? Why is this happening to me? I want Rehoboth. I want Shalom. Guide me back to it. And that's what happens to Isaac. He moves back, verse 23. From there, he went up to Beersheba, and Yahweh appeared to him. It's like God saying, you're in the right spot now. That same night, and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you. There is the number one command in the Bible, almost always followed by my presence and I will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of Yahweh, pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants dug a well. How cool is that? Strife, contention, broken relationships to now Beersheba, where God appears to him and says, all right, you're in the right spot. So for the first time in Isaac's life, he builds an altar. He's now, he took on the sins of his father, no doubt about it, but here he takes on the faith of his father. Isn't that our hope, ultimately, for all of our kids? That somehow our faith, the way that we've walked out life, sometimes sinful, sometimes good, that the whole of it, our kids say, faith is worth it. Jesus is worth it. Yes, I'm building an altar right here. And I love the order. God speaks to him. What's the first thing he builds? a house, altar, tent, well. I think that's a divine order. If you want to have a well-ordered life, I think it goes altar, tent, well. The altar is the place where you say, God, you are my priority. The tent is the family. Hey, I got to take care of my family, number two. And the well is for his occupation. Hey, I've got an occupation. I've got to get water for my sheep and for my ox and for my camels. It's his occupation. If a man, if a woman, I think keeps those three things straight, they do brilliant in life. God, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these other things shall be added unto you. Family number two, and then lastly, your occupation. Too often, I talk to men. Who have taken occupation and either put it above family or above everything. And now their kids are gone and now their marriage is gone and they're wondering what happened to me. Well, you got out of order. To me, it's like this it's like a budget. And most people don't like budgets, but budgets are there to help you. Do you know that? It's to help you so that you pay your mortgage before you fly down to Disneyland and go on vacation. So, budget is simple. You put the number one priority first, it gets the first amount of money. Number two, gets a second amount of money, all the way down until you run out of money. And if you've run out of money before you hit Disneyland, guess what? You don't go to Disneyland. It's that simple. That's what a budget does for you. All right? I think those three things are like a relational budget. It's God, family, occupation, that you keep those priorities, and that keeps your life from going bankrupt. I found it to be true in my life. God, when he's number one in my life, it's just things go right with me. And there are tendencies to to put kids above, to put a spouse above God. It always wrecks because you put too much pressure on your wife or you're too much pressure on your husband. They cannot be God. They cannot satisfy that deep thing in you. And so then you're like clingy and needy and you actually drive the person away from you. And I've talked to a mom once who told me this, it would kill me if my son did that. I said, man, you put that son way too high of a position in your life. He's not supposed to be up there. He's not supposed to be your life to be careful. So Isaac, right here, takes the faith of his father and orders it right. Altar, tent, well. And then verse 26, Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzaz, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army. And Isaac said to them, why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? And they said, we see plainly that Yahweh has been with you. So we said, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done nothing but good and have sent you away in peace, and now you are blessed of Yahweh. Was that true? No, right? Right? They had, his people had stolen two wells from him. So verse 30, he made them a feast and they didn't drink. And in the morning, they rose early and exchanged oath and Isaac sent them on their way and they departed from him in peace in shalom. That same day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well they had dug and they said to him, we have found water and he called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of that city is Beersheba too. This day. So, Abimelech, this dude, been his protector, sent him away, allowed his people to kind of steal wells from Isaac for a while, comes and says, Let's have peace. I'm a strong guy, you're a strong guy, let's not fight each other, let's not do that, right? So they make a pact and they go on. What's missing from this conversation? history, right? Isaac doesn't bring up the fact, what do you mean you've done good to me? Your people stole two wells from me. What are you talking about? If you go back to Abraham, Abraham has has a similar discussion, and guess what he brings up? The strife and contention over wells. Wait a second, buddy. your, Your people stole two wells from me. What are you talking about? Isaac does not bring up the wells that were stolen from him. I personally think he is a giant spiritually to let that go. To not be like, whoa, 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 whoa. You, before we go anywhere, we got to talk about what you did to me in the past. What Isaac does that I think is brilliant is this. He says, you want peace? So do I. Let's move forward. And that takes a giant person spiritually because most of us, Have to bring up the past. The majority of my counseling with marriages is dealing with past stuff. It's like there was a there was one couple. I probably met with them six times. Every time the wife would tell me the same story that the husband had done to her five years before. And I'm like, I'll listen to this, but you know what? You've already told them. No, I think it's really important that you hear it again. Okay. And here's what is happening: that that marriage was wrecked. It's this, and I shared this with them. I said, listen. When you drive a car, you have two things that are very important. You have the windshield and you have the rear view mirror. Now, if you wanna drive forward and you wanna get past things, you do not drive by looking in the rear view mirror. You will wreck. You can glance in the rear view mirror and that's okay. That's good. But the majority of your time should be "Uh, windshield, how do we move forward? That's exactly what Isaac is doing right here. If you're really coming to me and you're saying you want peace with me, I'm not gonna bring up the past because I want peace too. And if we can truly say, if you're, I'm not gonna try to read behind your motives. I'm not trying to read your mind. I'm just taking you at your word right now. Okay, let's have peace. And he has peace. Isaac, without fighting a single battle in his life, has peace with the Philistines who become the arch enemies of Israel. I think God is sending a message to his people through this. You can do things differently. Jesus would put it like this. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons, the huiases, adult, mature, access to everything the Father has, the huiases of God. Isaac walks it out brilliantly. I'm not going to keep hammering the past. If you really want peace, then let's go. Let's move forward. Windshield, not rear view mirror. Huge to me. Do you know how important good relationships are? Even with people like Abimelech or the Ficols, you know how, much, how important they are? I have a study by the New York Times where they tried to do this. They tried to quantify financially in a like, holistic way what it gives to your life. What, 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 what do good relationships, good marriages, good all that, what does that do financially if we could quantify it in money to a person? Here's what they found. Good relationships, reconciled relationships, good marriages, good relationships with your kids, they're worth quality of living, $236,232 per year. When you, when you talk about quality of life, the opposite, bad relationships are a negative of per year. You want a giant raise this week? (laughs) That's a half million bucks. Be reconciled. Be a peacemaker. If you can put history behind you, do that and say, I I just want to move forward. Can we move forward? Because that's what I want. Like Isaac right here, does not even bring up the old wells like his dad did. His dad couldn't do it. Dad had to bring up the old wells. Isaac doesn't. I just want peace. I love that. So he has shalom finally. Peace, shalom. And then verse 34. When Esau, Harry, was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Barry, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basamath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. And they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. I say it's shalom with sadness. It's not perfect shalom until Jesus returns. So, man, it seems like everything's working. Awesome, okay, we, we, we have peace with this dude. We just found more water. Awesome, and then Esau. Uh. <laughs> and the daughters-in-law, they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebecca. How tough is that? Do you know the difference between an in-law and an outlaw? The outlaws are wanted. (laughs) I'm just the messenger. One of the toughest things I think as a parent is when your children are adults and they marry people that you don't approve of. What do you do? It makes life bitter for Isaac and Rebecca. I wonder how many people, and I don't want anyone to raise their hand, would say, yeah, same here. Probably a number. A number of us could could probably say, yeah, I I feel that same way. Here's what amazes me. You have this chapter where Isaac walks out this incredible peace with these people, right? I'm not going to strive. I'm not going to contend. Okay, if you want to send me away, I'll go. All right, you're coming. I'm not going to bring up the past history. and, and, And there's shalom, right? He just walks out brilliantly, beautifully. Why doesn't he do the same thing with his daughters in law Right? Instead, he kind of sees. In fact, we'll find out. He never even tells Esau he's mad. He doesn't do it with Esau. And then when Esau and Jacob have their issues, right? You have Isaac, who's brilliantly made peace with Abimelech, brilliantly made peace there, not content, done everything right. And yet he does not do it with Esau. And with Jacob. I find that fascinating. He has the capability. He can totally do it, but he doesn't. Why does Isaac find it easier to do this in the business world than with his own kids and own daughter-in-laws? But isn't that the way we all find it? We're all just like Isaac. That somehow in our marriages or with our kids or with our family, it's like we can't do it there. So I have this, this great book, and in it, this, this counselor's talking about, he, he was doing this counseling with this guy who had this temper problem. And he kept saying, I keep losing my temper with my son. His son was in his teens, 15, 16. I just can't control my temper. He just gets me. I lose it. And the man goes on and on and on. And, and these counseling sessions go on and on and on. And finally, the counselor learns this dude's really stingy, but super successful and wealthy. So in the final counseling, he says, I know how to solve your temper issue with your son. The guy's like, tell me, how is it? He goes, I'll tell you, if you promise me, you'll do it. He said, I promise, man, I'll do it up to half my kingdom. I'll do it, whatever. So he goes, okay, great. From now on, every time you lose your temper with your son, you pull out your checkbook, write a check for $4,500, and hand it to your wife, and she spends it however she wants. He amazingly controlled his temper from that day on. <laughs> right? Because there's something with family where we expect more grace from them. Where we are more apt to say, it's just the way I am. You have to accept me this way. But that same way would never work at work. You get fired for that. And yet at home, we let it seethe and cause problems. And we don't deal with it because we expect more grace. We should never do that. It's God, family, occupation. We should be saying, I want to be sanctified. And I want to be changed at my home with my wife with my kids. I don't want these things germinate and fester. I don't want to sit here and secretly hate my daughter-in-law and never deal with it the right way. I don't want to do those things because we can have the tendency just like, just like Isaac to do it right there. Man, work, other people, no problem, but in our homes, things fester and cause problems. Don't be that way. Really prioritize your home. That's where it truly matters. John would say, There's no greater joy than to know my kids walk in the truth. The Bible calls the highest love, not not for neighbor, love your wife as Christ loved the church. It starts, it begins in the home and moves out from there. So we're gonna take communion and we're gonna pass it out. And I want you to think about maybe a broken relationship. maybe it's in your home. Maybe it's with an in-law. Maybe it's with a spouse. Maybe it's with an ex. Maybe it's at work. I don't know. Or, Or maybe you have strife and contention that you cannot seem to resolve. And maybe you need to hear from God, like, what do I need to do? where's my Beersheba? Did I get out of where I'm supposed to be? How do I get back to where I'm supposed to be? How do I get back to that where there's room for me? Did I go to border town for a while? And you're trying to draw me back to my Beersheba. And that's why I'm facing strife and contention right now. And when I get back there, I'll hear hear from you just like Isaac did. Show me how to do that. So take a moment and just think about those things. So Jesus I thank you for this incredible picture that we get from Abraham. He was a flawed man, but he amened you. He believed in you. He knew you were good and generous and he trusted you with his absolute best, his Isaac. He demonstrated it in Genesis 22. And you said he kept my commands, my statues, my Torah. His heart was right. And so I pray for us, Lord, this Wednesday night crew. I pray that we'd be walking in the steps of the faith-filled Abraham. That we would be trusting that you are good and that you are generous. And that would shape the way that we live our lives tomorrow morning. That we take seriously how you said someone wants to sue you for your shirt. Give them your code. That there is a radically different way to actually walk out life countercultural. Awesome. Help help me, Lord. Forgive me for ignoring the big commands and centering on the little ones that I keep. Forgive me for that, Lord. May I be like Abraham. May I trust your goodness, and your generosity in my life. May I not strive and contend over things. May I just let them go, taking a momentary loss for an eternity of gain. Oh, help me in that. Help me not to be afraid. I can be so afraid of finances or culture or where my kids are going. or what's ha- I can be so afraid, Lord. I don't want to be afraid. I want to trust you, that you're good, and you're generous. So help me not to be afraid. Help us as we partake in you to be being shaped by you, transformed into your same image. Help us, Lord. We pray this in your name. Amen.